In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 102. It is Tuesday, June 9th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we resume our division by division series with a trip through the AL West. We'll take a look at all five teams and try to uncover some things we didn't previously know, or at least hopefully things that you previously didn't hear on this show uh, or elsewhere, ideally. But uh, that's the plan. We're going to go team by team, and uh, Eno, I'm how are things going for you to kick off this new week? Good. At least I'm not in jail for trying to break into Miller Park and write my name on the grass with the tractor tires. <laughs> you know, you do not have a good name for uh, you know vandalizing and leaving your mark in the form of your name because <laughs> it quickly narrows down the list of suspects. <laughs> but also, so you might get there and say something dumb like, Wait, do we have a sponsorship deal with Chase? <laughs> that could be that could be your workaround. You could just put right. the little Chase logo next to it. it. And me, obviously, Chase did this. <laughs> obviously, corporate vandalism. <laughs> corporate uh, vandalism. Yeah, it's on the rise. <laughs> oh God, let's not say that too loud. You know that somebody somewhere in a marketing department is like, hmm, <laughs> that's a great idea. Let's let's do that. <laughs> oh man, I should cut that out just to not let that idea fly into <laughs> the world. Uh well, since we're just destroying the world uh in you know new ways with terrible marketing, <laughs> let's yeah. um push that aside immediately and uh, let's talk about the Astros, everyone's uh, favorite team to hate on. And uh I, I think we've said this before, I definitely long for the days when the Astros you know, cheating at baseball was the thing that I was most outraged about. Um, but there's some interesting things about this team, despite their transgressions. And I think pitching is one of those areas that you know, losing Garrett Cole, we've talked about that on this show, and not having a ready-made ace like they might have expected in Forrest Whitley to just sort of take that spot. It leaves them with a few other interesting young pitchers who are going to be more important to this team in 2020 than they were in 2019. And the two guys that we've discussed frequently, Jose Urquidy and Josh James, Urquidy is going just outside the top 200 in drafts since May 1st. We're talking about like a dozen NFBC drafts. And I'm starting to wonder, is he overpriced because of what he did late last season and in the playoffs? Is he actually a little underpriced because of some things he does really well? Or maybe is that price just right? Uh, the things that I think we like about him, the fact that he throws four pitches, he's very efficient. 
Uh, you can see that in a good catch-all metric like K minus BB percentage. Jose Urquidy was 10th among 80 rookie pitchers with at least 40 innings pitched in K minus BB percentage. So he can get some strikeouts. He doesn't hurt himself with walks. He pitches in a park that generally is very pitcher-friendly. So he ticks a lot of boxes, and he should have a rotation spot to call his own. Is there anything with Urquidy that gives you some pause as you kind of look back through what he did in that limited time with Houston last season? I would just say that um, though his stuff was good, um, I don't think that anything stands out as being amazing. Um, So I'm not sure... I, I kind of actually, and this is a little bit weird to say maybe about someone with such a small track record, but I kind of see him as a high floor, low ceiling guy. Um, you know, he's got the three pitches, but the fastball is not amazing um, at 93 on average uh, with a little bit of ride and, uh, you know, 8% whiff rate. It's decent, but, um, you know... If I say it in terms of stuff and command, his uh, stuff and command scores are almost identical, 102 each. So basically, slightly above average in both regards. Um, and I think that's what I I think of him. I think that maybe the projections are missing the fact that he has a good uh, array of pitches with command of them. Uh, but I'm not sure how much further I'd push uh, Urquidy than his ATC projection, which is a 407 ERA, 1.19 whip and a strikeout per inning. That seems pretty good to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that into the equation because of the projections on fan graphs. ATC was the most optimistic as far as what it spit out for Urquidy for this season. Uh, you think about guys that had you know a low fours ERA, a whip just below 120. Yeah, that, that group of pitchers doesn't usually scream upside. It does kind of give you that more like stable, like mid-rotation sort of presence and... Uh, with Urquidy, if he doesn't have a nasty wipeout pitch he can rely on, then it's going to be difficult for him to take a step forward with strikeouts as well. And I think it's really interesting because you know comparing him to Josh James, who has the wipeout slider, the big fastball, just the ridiculous strikeout potential, it just comes with the extremely high walk rates. I mean, we're talking like a, a Robbie Ray sort of statistical profile. Um, Actually, Josh James, looking at a leaderboard this morning, he stood kind of right next to Matt Barnes statistically. And that bothered me just because I used to think when Matt Barnes was a young pitcher that he was going to break through and be an effective starter for the Red Sox. And he's gone on to become you know, a nice late inning reliever. But if you were drafting Josh James in that same range where you'd be thinking about Urquidy, you will be disappointed if you're getting a guy who... Uh, doesn't have a path to the ninth inning, which I would say is true of James since they have a closer in Roberto Ozuna just kind of in that spot right now. So what do you see with James and it, kind of thinking risk versus reward, whereas you see so much floor with Urquidy, are you more inclined to be aiming for a ceiling pick in this range, knowing that you know things could go wrong for James, but if they go right, it could be a pretty big payoff? Where do you say James is being taken? It's a little bit later than than Urquidy, but we're talking like a round or two. So just outside wow. the top 200. A little bit surprised that they'd go that close, but um, I think it also depends on kind of uh, team dynamics in terms of draft dynamics. 
if you're talking about picks in the sort of 200, 300 range, maybe you're talking about final pitchers. And if you are talking about, you know, final pitchers or, you know, one of the last pitchers, starting pitchers that you're going to draft, then I think you might want to take this, the, the shot at upside. And, you know, James has, has very good upside. Um, you know, he has a 119 uh, stuff number, um, which is ahead of people like Sonny Gray. It's it's only two short of Walker Bueller. Uh, it's ahead of Jesus Lazardo, uh, ahead of Luis Castillo. So he has a really good stuff number. Um, but his command number is, is, is just as low. And I think I've put him on a list of pitchers like Dylan Cease and um, Denilson Lamette as pitchers that have a lot of stuff, uh, very little command and such little command that they're, you know, uh, at risk of being relievers. Um, we had, I had that piece that I tried to look at the, uh, predicting, uh, innings pitch per start or innings pitch per appearance using uh, stuff and command. And there was a slight effect for, uh, command kind of predicting how many innings you'll pitch, uh, command plus here. So it is possible that James is still a reliever. And uh, I also think about this in the context of player development, like, oh, um, you know, when you think of Astros and developing a pitcher, who do you think of? Um, You know, first, you might think of acquiring existing uh, pitchers and and tweaking them and making a little bit better. Uh, But there's also, you know, they also have had time to to develop their own pitchers. I think of like Corbin Martin, Josh James, uh, Jose Ercuti and the thing that's interesting about these is that they're not that similar. Um, you can't really say, oh, the Astros, they just blah. You know, it's not the Dodgers are a little bit have a little bit more of a playbook, I think, when it comes to high spin rate, uh, you know, four seamers and, and breaking balls. Uh, I mean, the, the Astros do that stuff, but they turn out. OK, just to put it into context here, Josh James has in my rankings the third biggest difference between his stuff and command numbers. Uh, so if you just take stuff minus command, it goes Tyler Glass now, Garrett Richards, Josh James, and just to give you a little bit of, uh, of context, Dustin May, Garrett Cole, Dylan Cease, Walker Bueller, Hugh Darvish, Denilson Lamette, Trevor Bauer, Sonny Gray. So um, I think that's a an interesting list because it's upside and downside and, and risky pitchers. Also pitchers that you'll see that I like. Uh, more than maybe a lot of other rankings because I, I'm a stuffist. Uh, but then let's look at where Urquidy ranks in a very interesting way. This is pitchers who are closest to zero. Pitches who have the smallest difference between their stuff and command scores. Number one, Jose Urquidy. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> number two, uh, Steven Matz. Uh, number three is uh, Trent Thornton. Number four is... Zach, please, Zach, number five is Shane Bieber. Yeah, these these lists both, uh, <laughs> it just mess with your head. Yeah, you go up and down, right? You're like, ooh, Trent Thornton. Um, but uh, in those cases, you have pitchers, and I think Shane Bieber is a good example of why, like, don't don't uh, get too obsessed with Urquidy's low floor because he might pop like a Shane Bieber, you know? If he's got excellent command of one of the pitches, um, you know that might that might be able to. He he can command that changeup pretty well, which is is rare. Uh, so maybe he can pop like a Luis Castillo, you know. Um, so Urquidy can pop. 
that, there's nothing to that. But but in terms of variance, I think the 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 distance between floor and ceiling on these pitchers is lower than the distance between floor and ceiling on Tyler Glasnow, Garrett Richards, Dustin May, Dylan Cease, Denilson Lamette. I mean, those guys, Trevor Bauer, those guys are like unusable in some years. Mm-hmm. And then they pump out Cy Young's. Tyler Glasnow was almost, like was basically dumped like a reliever in that trade. I mean, they messed up that trade, but he he was dumped like a reliever in that trade. Look back at that, and it you know every every time I'm just like, man, the Pirates are just like, how much better off would they be if they just hadn't done that? And uh, I feel even worse. We found out recently, Chris Archer's out for oh, the 2020 man. season. He had surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome. So uh, knowing how bad that injury is, too, it just uh, made me feel even worse. The the thing about Glass now that didn't really make sense to me at the very beginning of his career, so back in 16 and 17 when the Pirates gave him a, a few innings, I mean 23 innings in, in 2016, 62 innings in 2017, he wasn't striking the world out at that time. He was walking the world. The K-rate finally jumped in 2018, and it was up with the Pirates when they traded him to the Rays, and then it was the Rays who had been able to get the walk rate down. He's up to 115, 116 in the third innings now with the Rays since that trade, and his walk rate has been about 7.5%, kind of combining those numbers on the fly. K-rate's been right around 30%. Uh, it's been remarkable to see that sort of progression for him, given the struggles that were there. But I think he's the case for James also of if it goes right, it can go really right. Now, I think with Glass now, he's complicated for all of his own reasons. Injury last season being an arm injury, limited number of innings we saw. I mean, it's it's, it's easy to kind of fall in love with a sub-2 ERA and a .89 whip over 60 innings, but... You know where was he really going to go over a full season? I think that's where the the projections are a good guide. Nevertheless, you, you got one shot. Let's assume you've you've kind of built a typical sort of Eno foundation. You've got at least three starting pitchers already on your roster this season. Is James or Urquidy more likely to be your fourth? Urk. I mean, as much as I. Chase stuff. That's it's a bit early for me. Uh, I would love to pick uh, Dylan Cease as my sixth pitcher, rather than Josh James as my fourth. Yeah, and you're talking about a forty pick difference between those two guys. So you can take a hitter you like, or you could take a you know, someone else, like another closer, whatever it is you need in that spot. Wait a little longer, and still, still get someone who brings the type of ceiling you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, even Corbin Burns is a similar type pitcher. He was he was just below Sonny Gray on that on that list that I, I read out earlier. The difference in stuff and command. So, you know, I I just see that Irk has fewer flaws, and at a for fourth pitcher, I'm still looking for bulk and floor. You know, I don't I don't take these shots as much until the until later. And I think with a, a shortened season, if we have one, of course, uh, teams are not going to be as patient as they could be over a long season. If they do give someone an opportunity, they don't see the progress they're hoping for. They're going to be, I think, a little quicker 
to make those adjustments to the rotation to assign roles in the pen, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm with you. Have to you. go back to 2018 to to get you know 24 starts out of out of James. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's um, it, it, it's a fun one to think about. I mean, it's it's a it's possible they both do well. That's obviously in the range of outcomes as well, doing but it very differently. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very, very different paths. Uh, let's move out of Houston. Let's go to the A's. And I think it would be strange if we didn't take a closer look at Jesus Lazardo. He's probably one of the most discussed players uh, throughout this draft season. Disgusting. Disgust. I, I said that like I was upset about something. Uh, <laughs> his ADP since May 1st. That might be what I'm upset about because I, I like him. His ADP is 71 in 12 drafts since May 1st. That puts him now ahead of Brandon Woodruff, Jose Barrios, Trevor Bauer, Frankie Montes, Sonny Gray, Corey Kluber, Mike Soroka, and James Paxton. And here's my snap reaction, which I think you have uh, prepared yourself to quickly debunk. My snap reaction is that someone who has had the injuries that Luzardo has had, who didn't throw very many innings last year, who doesn't have a lot of experience, is probably more susceptible to getting pulled earlier in starts than a lot of the names, the more veteran players, who he's now being drafted ahead of. But I might be overlooking something, as uh, you learned prior to the show. So talk me into Jesus Luzardo as maybe being deserving of the elevated price. I will have to say, once you get ahead of Brandon Woodruff, um, you're and Jose Barrios, like you've gone past my enthusiasm. Even. <laughs> so uh, I was not aware that that's how enthusiastic people were. That is fairly amazing to me. Um, and probably I'm, I'm out at that point, but I did want to push back on one little factoid I've heard. Uh, that he only pitched uh, past five innings once in all of his starts last year, uh, going through the minor leagues and the major leagues. And that is correct. Um, but I do not think that that is necessarily going to continue happening. Um, there was, uh, you know, there was a fair amount of injury last year, so he was coming back from stuff. A lot of times he's it's almost like a rehab stint where he's coming back from off the injury and trying to stretch out. Uh, and then, then when he was in the major leagues, um, you know, he, he was on a team that was headed towards, uh, that was good and had a good rotation and was trying to find a way to maximize their use of him, uh, without, uh, stretching his innings too much. So he was kind of a two, three inning guy. Um, and I don't think that we can hold that, uh, necessarily against him long-term. And the last thing I wanted to say was that, like, if you have a pitcher that is really inefficient on an innings level, I think that it could be uh, something to worry about in terms of their future. So I looked at all AAA guys last year uh, that had at least, um, you know, 30 innings uh, like like uh, Lazardo did. Um, and I looked at their pitches per innings pitch. And when I look at a guy like Patrick Sandoval and Tuki Toussaint, who were uh, 26th and 27th out of 480 in terms of um, pitches per inning, uh, where they were using nearly 20 pitches per inning, um, then I'd say, yes, that worries me. Uh, that suggests to me that they have trouble putting guys away. 
that's going to lead to higher pitch counts early on. And no matter what you think about static pitch counts, mostly teams don't let people go past 90 or 100 these days. So I think that would be something to worry about. With Lizardo, though, we don't see any of that uh, efficiency problem. In fact, he's in the 87th percentile when it comes to uh, pitches per inning in, the, in AAA last year. And uh, when I looked at the major leagues, what did I find? I found that only 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 pitchers uh, used fewer pitches per inning last year. Uh, that's a minimum of 10 innings because he only threw 12 innings, uh, which I think in the end is the real thing. Uh, this is a huge injury risk. He only pitched 12 innings in the major league last year. I don't think I can push someone um, into the top 50, into the top 70 um, with those kind of credentials as much as I don't think that he's necessarily has an efficiency problem. Yeah, I kind of wonder if just in terms of track record if the injury history of jesus lizardo and he's younger than james paxton but if they're similarly risky and you look at what they're projected to do the bat has lizardo with james paxton Uh, Uh, if you look at paxton the bat has him at 374 and 120 for the era and whip the bat has lizardo at 343 and 116 so better ratios there most of the projection systems are pretty close on these two guys overall. Mm. I just, I wonder, I just wonder if you're better off just letting someone else have Lazardo for this year, taking Paxton a couple rounds later and doing something else with that pick, whether that's a different pitcher or a bat or a closer, who knows what it is instead. It doesn't matter necessarily, but I, I keep thinking like, yeah, this, this might be just a little bit too high. Like even if even if you can say he can hold his own in that group, maybe you shouldn't be paying the premium given what the other guys in that group also can bring to the table. Yeah, and like uh, in terms of alternatives and how drafts have gone for me or were going for me, I found myself not ending up with Lizardo in snake drafts because I have him very close to Urias. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I ended up with Urias instead because what I ended up doing was like saying, oh my gosh, you know, Lizardo went around before I wanted to, uh, I have both the Lizardo and Urias in the top, in the top 40, top 35, uh, among pitchers. Let me just, uh, grab Urias before it drops down to kind of the Urquidy, Yanni Chirinos types, you know? So... Um, I do see that Lazardo and Urias are part of a group of pitchers I'm more excited about. You could call them a tier if you'd like. Um, but I think Lazardo is going too early. Uh, you know, and of course, a little bit like uh, your Tatis thing. When I got into the draft at AL Labor, uh, I felt confident enough uh, to drop. I forget what it was, like twelve bucks on on Lazardo, uh, just because I could pinpoint you know, the exact value I wanted and didn't have to kind of think about uh, round dynamics and uh, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, and in that case, I was able to pair Barrios with Lizardo, which I think is actually something I could get behind because I think Barrios is fairly uh, safe in terms of innings, in terms of injury history, just given 
what little we know about past injury predicting future injury. Um, and uh, Lizardo has a way more strikeout per nine upside, so or at least strikeout upside. So comparing the two could be uh, fairly profitable. But again, it's really kind of hard to pull off in a draft in a in a, in a snake draft format. Uh, because they're going so close. So you'd either have to go back-to-back uh, Barrios Lazardo, and that might be, you know, your fourth and fifth picks. Um, you'd have to get, you'd have to think a lot of Lazardo, and you'd have to have had gotten three really great hitters to start. Not not impossible, but, you know, in that fifth round, you may be choosing between Woodruff and, and Lazardo, and like, hey, Woodruff's pretty sweet. I... I think if he had stayed healthy last year, people would like him even more than they already do. He's been one of the risers this draft season, a guy that if you were drafting way back in November and December, you were probably getting him just outside the top 100, maybe even around like pick 120. And it was just piece after piece just realizing, hey, he was actually amazing last year. So now he's kind of settled in at a, a full freight sort of price, but I think he can... Just, I mean, I think Lizardo's capable of being good enough to justify it. I just think the other guys in that group are probably more likely to justify it, for the most part, justify that price range. Uh, Urias still going a lot later than Lizardo. We talked about this when Lizardo first jumped up. There's still more than a 50-pick gap in ADP between Jesus Lizardo and Julio Urias. I just I don't understand why. That's the That's the easiest way for me to express what I don't get. I think. Okay. Very good. Both very good pitchers, similar injury histories, similar risk, I think, uh, similar upside. Let's talk about uh, an outfielder in Oakland for a minute. Ramon Laureano. I knew he was priced up. He's kind of in this range with Victor Robles and Tommy Pham, uh, kind of in the 70 to 75 range. Good, good outfielders who can fill every category potentially. Totally makes sense why he's being drafted where he is. And I stumbled into this by accident. I was just looking at his stat cast page. He was actually in the 8th percentile in outs above average last year, but in the 90th percentile in outfielder, uh, the, the jump metric they have. Cannon arm, of course. We've seen highlights. We've seen him just make ridiculous throws. The one from the, the warning track uh, to first base is one like two years ago now that still like plays on a loop in my mind. But... I started to look at this and say he's kind of this weirdly complicated player because he has power, he has speed, makes good contact, but he does have shaky plate discipline, and it kind of made me think, all right, how how safe is his playing time? Is his defense, is it average? Is it above average? Is it great? Like how, How good of a defender is he really? Because if he does go into a slump at the plate, is he just buried in the order of playing because of his defense? You know, That's still a better outcome than getting benched. And I started to wonder if actually if Mark Canna is just a lot safer in terms of skills floor, even though he doesn't run, despite the fact that Canna goes like 150 picks later than Ramon Laureano. Different players who do different things, but uh, Ramon Laureano is one of those guys that I just sort of nodded along to that ADP for most draft season. And now I'm kind of wondering if that's a good idea or not. Yeah. I don't know. The steals are pretty big for me. I mean, steals are just so scarce. And, you know, maybe he only steals 15, but that's, uh, you know, 10, 12 more than Kanha. Uh, and I think that they'll be pretty similar in other ways. The biggest flaw for me, for Loriano is just breaking balls low and away. 
Um, if you look at his stack cast, like they have a, a page called zones where you can just look at, um, you know, basically some pre prepackaged uh, strike zone maps. Um, and you can see really clearly if you look at misses by zone, uh, it's, it's blown away off the plate. It's a huge, is the only red thing on, on the map for him. Um, and that was something that we talked about, um, over the course of the year about how they're just feeding and breaking balls, feeding and breaking balls, feeding and breaking balls. And for a while he just couldn't lay off them and had some trouble with them. Uh, but he had a conversation with Joey Votto, uh, he wouldn't necessarily tell me exactly uh, what he was talking about with Votto, but um, over the course of the year, he improved his um, ability to lay off those a little bit, um, and uh, I think he, uh, I think it's a manageable problem. However, you know, obviously this became a, a real big problem for um, Andrew Jones once that he didn't fix really ever and i think led to a little bit of the shortness of of his career uh but andrew jones was pretty good otherwise and we're talking about uh a one season in the middle of roman loriano's career where he's 25 years old so even if that problem comes back to to hurt him and he ends up striking out 30 35 percent of the time later on in his career i don't think that's going to happen right now um i think he's doing a decent job laying off that and he has such a really fun all the way, you know, all around skill set where he's in like the top 15% for arm strength, sprint speed, barrel rate. I mean, this guy's an athlete and, um, and I think he's going to get that, uh, loan away, uh, strike thing figured out a little bit. It really is amazing. If you kind of just look at everything related to how he's pitched and how often he swings there and then how often he misses in that, down and away, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a backwards L-shaped Tetris piece. I guess we'd call that a J <laughs> in, <laughs> in this language. It's it's just uh, this like deep, dark red. It really stands out. So yeah, if you, if you do go to his StatCast page, like Eno said, Zones is just under the little boxes where the, the season stats are. There's career splits, game logs, StatCast options. Below that, it's like a green ribbon. Hit the Zones. You could kind of see uh, what we're talking about. Uh, so ultimately, the price seems kind of fair then around pick 75. Like you think the similar skills uh, or the skills are similar between Loriano and, and say, Pham and Luis Robert and uh, Victor Robles. Like the you know, some power, some speed, good batting average floors for the most part for that group and plenty of playing time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, a little bit of evidence that um, if you go into the more detailed uh, swing zones, uh, heat maps on fan graphs, that um, he was adjusting already. Uh, if you look at uh, full season versus July onward, um, he wasn't swinging at sliders off the plate as much. So he kind of zeroed in at least left to right when it came to, to sliders, which is, I think, at least step one, if not, you know, figuring the whole thing out. He was still, sli- uh, you know, swinging at sliders that were over the plate down um, late in the season. But perhaps that's the next step of his evolution. And even if he doesn't evolve and he's just a streaky guy that's super athletic, like 
you know, the, the projections and what he's done in the past all seem to line up fairly equally. I mean, he had a 288 average in his first season, and he had a 288 average last year. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I think he'll have like a 275 plus average, uh, something that would look like in a full season, like 20 plus homers and 15 steals. I think it's a, it's a rarer package than Mark Canhouse. So I think that's, it's worth, it's worth uh, a higher investment. Big, big difference in age too, of course. But yeah, Canha is a guy who just draws a lot of walks and, and really seems to control the zone. Well, uh, just seems pretty stable. We may see an exaggerated age effect this year. Hmm. Um, I'm just thinking about how it's taking longer for me to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, uh, with age, there is a little bit of an injury effect uh, with age. And uh, the injury effect will be heightened in, with the, the whatever season we end up having. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of where I've been sitting for a while, too. It's like I'm expecting soft tissue injuries and just nagging, annoying problems to be uh, more pervasive given what's happened to this point. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists that provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts just a bucket packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code ATHLETIC at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com. And enter promo code ATHLETIC for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code ATHLETIC. Maybe you're just walking around dehydrated all day, you know, and that's why it's so hard for you to get out of bed. Uh, I actually tend towards getting dehydrated. I feel like I drink so much water and my pee is still so yellow. <laughs> it's an uphill battle. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's go to Orange County. Let's talk about the Angels. Uh, Dylan Bundy. I had not noticed how much he moved up in the last couple of months. He's creeping into that top 280p range, just outside it, kind of next to Jose Urquidy, a little ahead of Josh James. So kind of fits into the framework of some pitchers we've already talked about on this episode. Are you in at that price? I mean, getting out of Baltimore, certainly a good thing, just from a park factor standpoint, the defense he has behind him, uh, really good, of course, with Angleton Simmons being healthy and, and playing shortstop. But, uh, what do you think about Bundy getting to kind of press reset and, and start over with a new club? Yeah, I'm a fan. Um, I don't know. At some point that like, you know, the, the hype starts to outstrip the value you can get. Um, but I, I think of, uh, and this may put him into the context, uh, hopefully the, that I've been talking about. Like, remember when the Pirates just did like a string of like two or three New York, New York Yankee pitchers um, that had had a hard time in New York? 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the I names. I know AJ Burnett and Ivan Nova are on that list. Did they try um, to do it with like Jeff Karstens too? Yeah, I, th- I swear there's other ones. And I think the basic theory was like, hey, they had home run problems and their park is very different than our park um, and our league. So let's see if we can help them iron it out. So Bundy is at least uh, a home run prone pitcher going from a home run prone park to one that is less home run prone. Uh, So on that level, I like him. But underlying talent level in all these cases came to bear eventually, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, AJ Burnett had better seasons in Pittsburgh, but it's not like he was like fundamentally better. And Ivan Nova ended up flaming out in Pittsburgh too. So um, I, when I look at Bundy, I see a plus changeup, uh, an average-ish fastball, you know, where the velocity is has fallen off to the point where it's below average, but the movement is good. Um, and then an okay slider, I guess a pretty good slider. It, it, it's not a slider that does that well by stuff uh, metrics, but it is a slider that produced 23% whiffs last year. Uh, no home run problem. Uh, he seems to command it pretty well. So overall, I-, I like Bundy to be a usable pitcher next year. I just keep looking at the home road splits from last year. So he had 17 starts at home, 13 on the road. On the road, opposing hitters hit 216 with a 297 OBP and a 409 slugging percentage against Dylan Bundy. That's Jeez. good work by Bundy. Uh, at Camden Yards, opposing hitters hit 287 with a 341 OBP and a 501 slug. Damn, and he gives up homers even on the road. I mean, like that. I, I think there's this big fly ball tilt, and, and we've talked about yeah. Anaheim being a park that prior to I think it was last season they lowered the fence in right field and moved it in. If I'm not mistaken, or maybe it was even two years ago now, but they, that they, was they redrew, one change. They redrew the line in right field. Uh, made it easier to hit it out to right field. But it's still not Camden Yards, and it's still no. not the AL East, right? So I, I do think there's there's justifiable reasons to say, hey, just on environment alone, he should be better. Can the Angels do something? Can they make a tweak? Is there something maybe that the Orioles never quite unlocked with Bundy skills-wise that the Angels can get to? I mean, that's that's a bit more of a leap, but still not impossible well there was the whole bit with you know uh banning cutters and you know then being like no no that's a slider (laughs) when bundy called it a cutter his whole life but um uh maybe their uh pitching staff or maybe because of his injury history they weren't willing to push the slider percentage but uh, you know 22 percent career 20% 20% career slider usage is actually not that aggressive. Um, even though he has cut his four-seam fastball usage over uh, his career, he could cut it a little bit more. Uh, he could throw 40% fastballs, uh, 3% sliders, and thirty, uh, you know, 25 to 30% sliders. Um, that, that, that Dylan Bundy has not been tried out yet you know what i mean 
the Yoli's um, Chassin Dylan Bundy. Right. Yeah, we haven't really pushed that button just quite yet. Um, surprisingly, uh, but um, you know, you have to factor in that early on he was injured a lot. But you know, since then he's been fairly productive with like you know basically averaging around 170 innings for three years. That's not bad. Um, if you did, uh, if he did everything correct, I think his ceiling this year would be like a 1.2 home run per nine, uh, three walks per nine, uh, nine and a half strikeouts per nine, and like a 4.00 kind of guy hmm. with like a 1.25 whip. When we were talking earlier, you know, a low fours ERA with like a 120 whip. That's what the best of the projections has for Bundy. Like that's useful. That's, that's not a bad, it's not a bad pitcher. It's just not a guy that you draft and just always have in your lineup in a mixed league. There are going to be matchups where you don't want to take on the risk. So I think that's, yeah. that's sort of where the line is. Yeah, but you know, you think about that uh, that division, and all of a sudden the Astros have the most hitter friendly park possibly because the Rangers players were already talking about how the new stadium is going to play pitcher friendly. They think uh, the hitters were saying that. Um, at the very least, we know that it should play closer to neutral because it's now a dome, and that heat was the biggest part of that park factor down there. So, um, if you've got uh, two neutral parks. Uh, two uh, two really good parks or two pretty pitcher friendly parks in your division. Um, you know it's a fairly big divisional turnaround too. It's not just the home park, right? But it's true. Then in a short season like this, are we going to have the uh, dramatic realignment? Even if we do have the dramatic realignment, there are more pitcher friendly parks out west. Yeah, San Francisco, San Diego. I mean, you do have to deal with the Dodgers, and Dodger Stadium is more hitter-friendly than, I think, it's past We don't even know what AL, NL stuff would look like, so is, is he going to have to go to Colorado? <laughs> ah. Yeah, I think if if that original concept for 10-team divisions where both, both leagues' eastern divisions are one mega division, central, same thing, west, same thing, uh-huh. you would pick up Colorado. Yeah. But what are we talking about? One, maybe two road series at most where he'd have to go there? I mean, what's their bottom line on him? Like, should we play, would you rather? Yeah, it's time to time to dust that off. All right. Would you rather? I'm just going to use my rankings. Because I had him 70th. So, would you rather Dylan Bundy or Kevin Gossman? My snap answer on that one is Gossman, which... Say something. Say Uh, something already. Uh, Dylan Bundy or Dallas Keuchel? I never end up with Dallas Keuchel, but I think I'd rather have Dallas Keuchel. Dylan Bundy or David Price. Price by a okay. good margin. Yeah, yeah I, I think Price, you I know, we talked about the, the guys that are behind Lizardo, Montas and Soroka and some of those guys, Bauer. Like, Price belongs in that group for me. 
I I was I was reaching high up. I had price in this edition. I had price fifty four and the Zardo forty. So like, I'm not too far off what you're talking about. Um, and price was moving up. It just prices uh, stuff and command numbers did not look that good. His stuff has has fallen off. Uh, but perhaps the but in, and what's the league change going to mean if they're all DH right? Yeah, that's so, true. Uh, but uh, I think we found it right where he lives. Uh, how about this one just for me? Bundy or Turnbull? Uh, you know what? I had Bundy ahead of Turnbull when I uh, did uh. this previously. And team context is kind of important here. The, no, the Angels could be pretty good. Be <laughs> the Tigers are not going to be very good. Uh, no. So I, I think that's probably a, enough to, to break them apart. But the, the greater point here is that the difference on my list from SP, let's say, 60 to like SP 100, it's very little difference at all in that range. Yeah, it's kind of... And that that was a little bit of my point on the Josh James thing. Like, I might have James higher than that, but I guess when... the when you know when the, no, I don't. I have James in sixty nine. Ooh, nice. Um, that's why I had him God, too. That's geez. very odd. Like why? What is wrong with me? Well, you know, <sighs> you're, you're trying. You're trying to grow. God. Um. Anyway, so uh, James, uh, when you get there, you're like everything's so contextual, right? It's like even this discussion of like, oh, do I take Bundy or Turnbull? Um, or like Sandy Alcantara, like around this time, you can try and like put them in and, and have general rankings, but the choice between those three, it really matters what the rest of your choices were with your pitchers, right? It's like, if you have a bunch of pitchers on good teams that'll get wins, then maybe Turnbull's the one you want or Alcantara. If you have a, a daily or a weekly lineup, uh, you know, that's a big deal for Alcantara. You know, can you can you put him in for the good starts at home and stuff, or could or do you have to just ride or die with him? Um, and I think that you know context starts to matter a lot more when you get into that sixty to ninety range, where there's a lot of pitchers up and down here. You can you can make a case for like, oh, in my setup or with my existing staff, this is the the pitcher I want. I'd much rather have Mitch Keller than any of the guys we've missed miss here because he Mitch Keller is either going to make it. Uh, till week four on my roster and be a good pitcher, or he's going to be the guy, the first guy that sees the door. And I'd rather not play that game with Dylan Bundy where he has one good start and one bad start, and I don't know whether or not to drop him. <laughs> I also wonder if that's complicated by having a track record in which Dylan Bundy has let us down more than he's come through for us, though, too. It makes us quicker to hit that release button. First first one out the door, yeah. Like, oh, I've seen this before. So mad. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see the drop rates on Dylan Bundy if he has uh, a start in Angel Stadium, his first start, and gives up three homers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, six runs, three homers, three innings. Like, just one of those... Those Dylan Bundy drops. specials. Like, <laughs> there he goes. Oh wait, he was he was seventy eight percent owned going into the start, and now he's ten percent owned. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, well, well, past track record plays in. So, all right. So we, it's not a ridiculous price. It's not a must draft at the price either. I think is probably the the Bundy takeaway if you if you zoned out there for five minutes. 
we'll summarize that one. Um, one other thing that really kind of caught my eye as I was digging around uh, on the Angels, Justin Upton was actually in the top 10% of the league in barrel rate per batted ball event every year between 2015 and 2018. Of course, bad injury in 2019, missed a lot of time with that knee injury. He just seems like a very obvious bounce-back candidate to me. Like, is there, is there some reason why I shouldn't just expect Justin Upton to be a power hitter with run production that looks more like a guy who goes inside the top 100 overall as opposed to a guy who's barely inside the top 200 on most boards? Well, Jeff, well, actually, again, I can't help myself. Uh, Jeff Zimmerman on Fangraphs had a piece about projected bounce backs and age. Um, and how you can, how much you can, uh, how much you can believe in a projected bounce back, uh, you know, basically in age buckets. Um, and I, I want to be able to take, uh, yes, he, he, the way he put it was at what age is a hitter's production no longer reliable? Um, and the top line takeaway at the end uh, was that 32 years is the cutoff. Oh, that's weird. He's 32. <laughs> and in fact, number one on his list of projected bounce backs is, drum roll please, Justin Upton with a two, 2019 return of negative five bucks and a 22, 2020 projection of 16 bucks. And so I think uh, it might be instructive just to list some of the other guys. Andrew McCutcheon coming off a major injury. Um, if, if you believe in Upton, then McCutcheon's right there. Chris Davis, major injury. Lorenzo Kane, fairly injurious. Um, and then we've got J.D. Martinez as the first uh, bounce back off of a good season uh, at a big age. Uh, where you've got J.D. Martinez, Braun, and Turner all expected to do a little better next year, even though they're 32, 36, and 35, uh, respectively. So I would just say, I like him. It makes sense. The projections are there. The value is there. The age is not. You know what? He's younger than me, so he's not old. (laughs) You've got to let that ship sail, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm doing okay with it. <laughs> I I I think I'm going to have a meltdown around age 40, like at age 40 probably. That, that's when I am sort of expecting it to happen. I've I had seen mine it at 30. You had one at th- you'd like so we were hosting this show, you know, when you turned 40 uh, last spring. And you seemed to take it pretty hard, but you took 30 a lot worse, right? I think you told the oh, story man. actually on the show now that I'm thinking about it. Well, I just I just, I went out, you know, a lot of my friends were turning 30, so there's all these 30th birthday parties. And I and I basically went to each, I don't know if it was like in the forefront of my mind, but I was like, I'm going to prove that I can party like I'm 20. <laughs> and I couldn't. That's an error that you can definitely make at age 30. I Common error. I would just, I'll put it this way. I have never been cut off at the bar except for <laughs> once during that time. That was at age 30. I tried to order my third round of Jaeger for everybody. 
Um, yeah, you got to be in the Northwoods here to get away with that. And the bartender said, are you the one that stole all the toilet paper out of the bathroom? <laughs> and I said no and hid three rolls of toilet paper behind my butt. <laughs> and he said, what's behind your back? Please get out of here. <laughs> did, you, did you walk up to the bar holding the toilet paper? I did, because I had been dancing with the toilet paper. <laughs> right, and then he asked the question, and then you thought, like like a like cartoon style, you yes, just said, I can oh, hide just gonna, it now. <laughs> just going to sneak that behind my back, and he'll never even know. Because he wouldn't have just asked you randomly if you stole the toilet paper out of the yes, bathroom, unless you were holding paper. a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> when I woke up the next day, I, I had a, a self-reckoning. <laughs> and uh, have changed habits. Starting that next day, I've, I've changed habits. I've, I've changed. I changed my life. At forty, I just uh, went to Vancouver. That was fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you stopped drinking Jägermeister when you were thirty, you probably you know made a good choice there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are never stories involving Jaeger that end well. No. No, I don't think so. Let's uh, let's talk about the Rangers for a moment. Let's. And, um, you know, this is part of the maybe the Rangers really know what they're doing with pitching file. Kyle Gibson last year, a guy that has drawn some, let's say, scorn from the fantasy community over the years, uh, had a career best 22.7 strikeout rate, 22.7%. I can talk. Uh, career best 13.1% swing strike rate. He did spend some time on the IL with ulcerative colitis. And I know as we kind of look over players and, and think about health histories. Uh, there could be some elevated risk for him in playing in a pandemic, and mostly because of the medications for something like that. So something to just be mindful of. But it probably tells us something. The Rangers gave Kyle Gibson a three-year deal. And I think people reacted to that Kyle Gibson deal pretty similar to the way they reacted to Lance Lynn going there and getting a three-year deal. Uh, a year and a half ago, I think it was. Speaking of time being all twisted up and confusing. So how much do you want to just trust the Rangers based on some of the things they've done well in recent years, which we've, we've discussed on, on past episodes? And, and how much do you just believe or not believe in Gibson in particular as a guy that seemed to put a few things together last year in Minnesota, where you know we've talked about an organization that's been on the receiving end, a lot of praise for how they've handled uh, players for the better part of a year now. Yeah, uh, I don't. I wonder if there's uh, if he's near his peak and there's not another. You know, like I said, button to push. Um, you know, he had last year the lowest fastball percentage of his career. Um, he's improved his location strategy year over year. Last year was his best strikeout minus walk rate. Um. But it is funny to kind of look at that Sierra column. I don't use it too often, but with somebody who has a long track record, um, you know, it's funny to watch ERA kind of stumble around uh, like a drunk person with three rolls of toilet paper, uh, <laughs> while Sierra is like really constant. I mean, just since 2014, 418, 412, 470, yeah, 460, 425, 425. So he's basically. Uh, been sitting around the 4.3 Sierra uh, his whole career. Um, and I think maybe they just did a calculation where like, you know, at this price, uh, you know, $9 million a year, basically, uh, you know, he's worth it uh, because he'll be a credible starter, you know? 
uh, it won't be a great one, but at 4.2, uh, you know, Sierra over, you know, 4.3 Sierra over the last, uh, you know, five years, six years, he's shown that he can be a credible one. And, you know, there's a name that kind of stuck out to me. I, I looked at for, for a piece on Hanjin Ryu, I looked at a, just the, the uh, number of pitchers that threw five pitches at least 10% of the time um, and then uh, also had good command of those pitches uh, and, and good swing strike rate. So, um, you know, if you just set sort of 10% swing strike rate as the minimum and 100 uh, minimum for command plus, what you end up getting is Ryu, uh, Kyle Gibson, Noah Syndergaard, Cole Hamels, and Jake Odorizzi. Um, and I think that's a, that's a pretty good list of kind of describing. And then ones that just barely missed, another one is like Tanner Roark. So I kind of see him as like a slightly better Tanner Roark. Okay. Well, that's valuable to you. No, no. I mean, it's, 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 it matters. I mean, it helps big league teams win a few extra games. It just doesn't necessarily help us as fantasy owners win championships. I don't think so. I'm not sure. Like he has five decent pitches. Um, but you know, only one of them is really uh, clear of average. Okay. Uh, well, I'm imagining there's going to be a similar problem with with Jordan Lyles because the Rangers really seem to have a type, but he pitched so well uh, for the Brewers down the stretch last season, uh, pitched well for them in very limited innings at the end of 2018 as well. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, is there something going on there that could actually work over a larger sample? You know, I, I think that's, that's the, the question most people have with Jordan Lyles. And these guys go outside the top 400 in terms of ADP. Like there's still some skepticism about their skills and maybe not enough being applied to the fact that Texas should be more pitcher-friendly than it's ever been with the new stadium. I think off-air I called uh, Lyles a uh, knockoff version of Kyle Gibson, which uh, would make our old friend Paul Spore uh, barf a little in his mouth, I think. But... Um, one of the things that actually I think I was I was mislooking at something. Uh, one of the things that really solidifies this comparison, they are very similar. And I just wanted to point out Kyle Gibson's stuff numbers for his slider: one hundred four, changeup: one hundred two, uh, fastball: ninety three point seven. Jordan Lyles' stuff number: curveball: one ten, slider: one hundred nine, changeup: one hundred four. Fastball, 93. So basically what you've got are guys that don't have great fastballs but have a large variety of pitches. And I think the basic theory will be we're going to dial down their fastball usage, dial up their breaking ball usage, um, and uh, find a way to uh, to get the most out of them that we can get out of them. And at the very least, if they're just as good as they've been the last two years, they'll be worth the, the, the sort of 8 $9 million investment we made. Yeah, and, and maybe you get lucky and you get more, but you don't have to with those contracts to come away feeling good about it. Uh, so similar for but a it, lot of reasons. Do you just trust Gibson because they they put more into him and the numbers on the stuff just a little bit better, even though there's so much similar there too? I just, you know, I'm trying to come up with a context in which you want to buy, buy these guys in fantasy, right? Because the floor is is there 
for a major league team, but is the floor there for a fancy team? Like, I don't think I really even had him on my radar for AL labor because honestly, like a, like a four or five guy or a four, four guy, even in 12 team AL only is not something you want to shoot for. Right? Like I took Trent Thornton for a buck and I'm sure Kyle Gibson went for more than a buck, but I'd almost rather just see if Trent Thornton can be better than we think. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. We're, we're talking about, again, a couple of guys who have longer track records of being just kind of solid and, and not being good enough to get us where we want to go as fantasy owners. So I, I think this is really, to me, though, it, it's how much of an outlier was Lance Lynn as far as the Rangers having as much success with him as they did? Is there anything about that? Because I mean, a year ago, Lance Lynn would have been in almost the exact same range maybe a little earlier but not not much nobody was excited about Lance Lynn a year ago going into the fantasy season and he just came up with this year that frankly I don't think the most optimistic Lance Lynn loving fantasy player on the planet was going to come down with a a 246k sub four ERA season like the one that he turned in right I mean like that that was just Never in our wildest dreams could that have been a possibility, and it, it happened. Lance Lynn, before the Rangers signed him, was throwing harder than he had ever thrown before. Yeah, Velo was up. I think that's that's it. And I, and in terms of uh, the the new guys, Gibson and Lyles, Gibson threw harder than he ever threw before last year. However, for Lance Lynn, it was, he threw 93-plus for the first time in his career when he'd been throwing 91s before, whereas Kyle Gibson in 2017 threw 92 on average, 93 in 2018, 93.3 in 2019. So slightly more uh, graduated uh, uh, movement up. But if he if he added a little bit more and sat 93.5 next year, 93.6, I suppose I like... Uh, Kyle Gibson a little better than Jordan Lyles then. Okay, fair enough. But both more in that streaming boat, not guys you're throwing the late dart on, thinking that you're going to uncover someone that should have been going a lot earlier. I think that's a reasonable position to take. Uh, you know, no need to go overboard talking ourselves into it, but more just kind of saying, hey, like there's something something going right in Texas with the pitching front. That's true. That's true. Let's uh, close things out with uh, the Mariners, who Barely even have a player inside the top 200 in ADP. Malik Smith just barely in there, 189.5 since May 1st. I don't want to talk about Malik Smith. <laughs> We're not going to talk about him. We, we, we've done that. <laughs> it takes the Tom Murphy. They have two inside the top 300. Wow. That's the only other one? Yeah. And he's, it's not like he's a must-have, like, totally safe Jeez. player in that range either. Mm-hmm. But the, the player that I think I'm most intrigued by with the Mariners, you could go a lot of directions with this, is Kyle Lewis. And mm-hmm. I think we talked about him a little bit at the end of, of last season, but he's had so many injuries in the minors that it's very difficult to look back at what he was doing at, at high A and double A you know, between 2017 and 2018 and say, oh, okay, like he, he's just a bust, right? Like, I don't think he's a mixed league, like a shallow or mid-sized mixed league sort of player. 
But I just think he's one of those guys that you can't write off because injuries have been that extreme for him. Like there, there could be a late blooming uh, guy that actually does sort of meet the expectations that come with being a early first round pick. I mean, he was an 11th overall pick back in, in 2016. Huge raw power. We did see it in the form of barrel rate. There was a ton of swing and miss. Not a big surprise. He skipped over AAA entirely. And as I mentioned, with all that missed development time, you know what? What are you going to do in in a September call up? You're probably not going to have a guy who comes up and maintains a low K rate. Uh, what do you think about Kyle Lewis though, and just the the long path it's taken for him to just finally last year between AA and his time in the big leagues sort of show that power that was sort of the calling card that made him that pick uh, just uh, four years ago. I mean, he hit the ball really hard while he's up, and it was only 43 batted balls, but, you know, 50 batted balls is not magic, but it suggests that 43 batted balls is some information. So we have some information about how hard he hit the ball. And also, you mentioned he skipped AAA, uh, so we never got to see him with the rabbit ball in the minors. Mm-hmm. You know, what if you could mentally fill in, you know, 2019 Mariners, AAA, 200 plate appearances with like a 240 ISO? With the rabbit ball. That would make people excited. And he'd be- I think that would like fill in a gap because otherwise you're looking at the minor leagues like, ah, oh, his ISOs are all like 130 and 140 in the minors. What, what, what is this raw power you're talking about? But I think people, uh, you know, who are ranking him, like Fangraphs gave him a 70 on raw power. You don't see that many 70 uh, grade raw power players. Yeah. So, and then you look like he didn't really have extreme fly ball rates. So, um, you know, there's some, there's some, uh, tweaking that can be done at the major league level with major league coaching, uh, perhaps with the hitting coaching or just some, something that might come with time because he's only really played around a thousand major league plate appearances, uh, because of all that injury interruption. So I, 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 I put him on that labor squad for a reason. I, I think he's kind of like, you know, uh, the ideal dollar, $2 type play where you're like, you know, he could just take a job and go with it. And even if he hits 240 and strikes out 28% of the time, you know, if the power's there, he'll have been worth it. Yeah, I think if we were looking at a complete season, it's easy, like 30 home run pop. Like that, It's not even really a debate. I mean, the scouting grade reflects that. It's just, it's hidden in the minor league numbers. And if I remember correctly, too, the... The AA affiliate for Seattle has one of the more pitcher-friendly, one of the most pitcher-friendly environments in all of minor league baseball. So like that kind of piles on for this guy. I mean, mm. the overall production, WRC Plus at AA last season, wasn't off the charts, but it was, it was steady. It was 109. And then you have to add in team context. that This is not a team that has a player that's going to keep Lewis on the bench, other than Hanniger. You know... Like, listen, with Hanniger probably still rehabbing, maybe with the extended date he can get back in there, let's give Hanniger a, a spot. Here's what's left for the other two spots. Malik Smith, D. Gordon, Jake Fraley, and Kyle Lewis. Or Lope, Lopes or Lopez. I don't actually know how to say that name. Tim Lopes? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Lopes. Um, who is definitely a utility type. Um, and then you then you start getting into uh, 
possible prospects and stuff. But I think this team doesn't really want to start anybody's clock this year. So I think Lewis is the obvious, and Fraley is um, in a mix to take Malik Smith's job. Yeah, I, I think if you're the Mariners, if you're, really, if you're not going to give Kelnick and Rodriguez a look this year, which makes sense for the obvious reasons of then you know, see if Fraley and Lewis are actual starters, right? Like make make sure that they play a ton. Malik Smith so is not know. a part of your future, so you play him when you need to play him, but you don't have to worry about playing him. When Hanniger's healthy, you do run with the Hanniger, Fraley, Lewis combination in your outfield. That's that's the base. And maybe outfield. you start the year. And here's another thing: I think that Fraley's interesting, but you know, defense is part of that interest. Um, you know, part of what makes him more interesting. And so I, you know, in terms of his WRC projection, it's it's below ninety for the most part. Um, so I would say. Uh, if you want to start the year and be like, hey, we're trying to win, then the trying to win lineup is still includes Han- Lewis. It's it's Hanager, Malik Smith, Lewis with Fraley as the as the backup, uh, the fourth outfielder type. And then over the course of the year, as you start to lose games and you get out of it, then you start bringing in Fraley as a starter over Malik's. That's my prediction for how the outfield works. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. And and Fraley, I mean, was amazing at double a i think we've talked about that before 156 wrc plus last year got the bump to triple a was a tick above a uh, league average at 104 uh but also you know he, he showed in-game power albeit with the rabbit ball and he showed some speed as well chipped in with six steals and eight attempts i mean he, he's just one of those guys he might be a better fantasy player than a real life player and all he needs is an opportunity to provide some value for us i think he'll be a good waiver wire pickup at some point in the season yeah i just i can't imagine malik smith finishing the season in a starting role if, if he didn't finishes in seattle at all like i could see him just being in a bench player for a contending team maybe even that i think is is a little bit of a stretch it's so weird to me actually that the projections for malik smith in terms of wrc plus are almost identical to fraley yeah, where do you think that comes from? Uh, it comes from the 2018 outlier. It comes from Fraley uh, being projected to be less power, because um, you know he's consistently put up ISOs over 200. Uh, you know, the last two years at three different levels, and he's projected to like a 160 ISO. Hmm. And. Then uh, a large strikeout rate in a small sample last year, uh, I guess, is pushing his projected strikeout rate from you know an observed twenty percent level in the minor leagues to twenty five percent in the major leagues. So he ends up looking a lot like Malik Smith in terms of strikeouts and walks, and just has a little bit more power and less speed, I guess. I think the key here, though, is that when you look at Malik Smith. You're looking at a player who's had over 1,600 plate appearances in the big leagues. Yes, very known quantity. <laughs> yeah, and he's been you know below average as an offensive player in three of his four seasons. 93 WRC plus overall, so below average for the the bulk of that time. And he grades out as a below average defender too. So, you, you, what's your what is your excuse for putting him on the field as you rebuild? Like there, there just there isn't one unless you don't have anybody else to put out there. Like that's that's it. That's the story. Yeah, yeah. or your your Biden time. Yep, that's uh, and, and I just don't think they're going to do that. I think Fraley is going to play a lot, and I, I think Lewis is going to play a lot too. 
All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up for the AL West. Uh, if you're listening to this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take the time to do it. We would greatly appreciate that. If you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get that at 40% off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. We appreciate everybody who is supporting the site at this time. Uh, it's just uh, it's as much as we can ask for. So thank you from uh, the bottom of our hearts if that's something you have been doing or something you're going to decide to do in the near future. As always, you can reach us via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Just be sure to spell out the word and. If you go that route, you can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. It's going to wrap things up this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening.